The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Well, I'm excited to bring the message this morning. It's always such a joy to preach the Word of God and be with you uh, every morning, whether or not I'm here to minister in whatever capacity I can, and this morning we are going to be continuing in uh, the book of John chapter 9. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to chapter 9. Uh, the verses that we'll be covering will also be up here on the screen. We're going to be looking at spiritual blindness, part 2. Last week, Pastor Colin did part 1, uh, where we looked at a story of a man who was born blind, and he was approached by Jesus and his disciples, and they start to discuss, discuss the issue of sin. And they assume that his result, uh, the result of his blindness was, or the cause of his uh, blindness was sin, and they begin discussing that. And we saw that Jesus teaches his disciples that the sin was, not, was neither the sin of the man born blind nor of his parents, but was so that the works of God can be displayed. And that's, that teaching uh, is very important as we as human beings face a lot of suffering in this world, isn't it? Because a lot of times we look at our own su suffering and we want to ask the reason, we, we want to ask the question, why? Why is there so much suffering? Why is there suffering in my life? Why am I sick? And at least in this instance, Jesus teaches that the purpose of the suffering is that the works of God can be displayed. And we also saw last week that Jesus sees us. The man wasn't approaching him. Jesus was approaching the man. And that's a, that's a great comfort as well. Jesus sees us in our suffering, right? And he's, he's pursuing us even when we're not always pursuing him. So we're going to look at the, the remainder of the passage. We're going to go through uh, verse 13. Uh, all, all the way through verse 41, which is the, the remainder of the passage. And I want to just briefly touch on the context. I just spoke about the context, but right before that, in chapter 8, we saw that Jesus was speaking in the temple. And in the temple, he said uh, at the end of that passage that before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to stone him, but he escaped from the temple and went out and now he's out of the temple and he's passing by. And it's not specific in the passage exactly where he is. All we know is that he's left the temple. And as he passes by, he sees this blind man. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to approach this passage assuming that it's somewhere in Judah. He hasn't gone too far from Jerusalem. Uh, but that it, it, we're going to approach this passage with the, with the assumption that this is not in Jerusalem proper. And we're going to see some of the, uh, the, um, the clues that that's the case. And whether or not that's important or not, we can see that this, the discussion and the fallout from this miracle just continues the drama. Because already we've seen drama with this man being born blind and then being healed by Jesus... Uh, and, and the discussion that, that takes place, it, this only continues to expand as it brings in more and more people into this situation. And there's just more and more opportunity for Jesus to use this as a teaching opportunity. So let's begin. Uh, we're going to look 
the first point here is this man is brought to the Pharisees. And in verse 13, I'm going to read verse 13 and continue on through verse 17. If you follow along with me, please. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly uh, who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the, to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. So we see here, as the story continues, this man is brought to the Pharisees. And we just saw that some of the Pharisees believed that Jesus is a sinner because he had done this miracle on the Sabbath. And, and because of that, there was an offense. Because in their paradigm, in the way they taught the law, nothing was to be done on the Sabbath. And that included doing good things like healing. So now they're, they're in this paradigm. That's their teaching. That's their doctrinal position on the Sabbath, period. Now Jesus comes doing a great miracle that nobody had ever seen before. And because of their view of the Sabbath, they decide that he's a sinner. So what do we make of that? Are they right or is Jesus right? Now, obviously, 2,000 years later, it's very easy to side with Jesus. But if you're in the context of the Old Testament and the teaching of the Pharisees, what would you have concluded? The Sabbath was very, very strict in the Old Testament. We see in the book of Exodus, somebody actually killed or stoned to death for gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Okay? They were told not to work. He worked. He was, he was, up, he was punished for it. But Jesus has already taught on this. In Mark 3, verses 4 through 6, says, he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger and grieved with their hardness of heart. He said to the man, and this is a man with a withered hand, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So this kind of thing has happened before. And Jesus asked the question, is it, is it right to do good on the Sabbath or to kill? And the reason he asked that question is that if you have the power to, if you have the power to heal someone or you have the power to save a life, for you not to do that, in the face of a rule like the Sabbath would be tantamount to you killing that person. Because we look in Luke 14, where it's, it's a very similar situation on another occasion where Jesus asked them if they had a son or an ox that had fallen into a ditch, would they help them? And they didn't answer because they knew that each and every one of them would help an ox. But they were going to condemn Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. So their hypocrisy was being exposed this happened in Galilee. It's not clear whether these people would have been aware of these teachings and these, in these, um, these discussions that Jesus had previously had in Galilee. But once you hear it, it's kind of like, oh, of course. Of course you're allowed to do good on the Sabbath. 
If you had an ox that fell into a ditch, you wouldn't say, oh, because it's the Sabbath, I won't pull it out. Otherwise, that thing's going to die. Or your son, I mean, think of it, your son falling into a ditch. It exposes the hypocrisy and legalism of the day and the teaching of the Pharisees that held the people in bondage of legalism exposes that and they can't stand that. They can't st- instead of instead of repenting, they can't stand it. And they want to take their their uh, position against Jesus in defense of their traditional legalism. You can see, though, in verse 16, there's a division among them because they say, well, wait a minute. If he's a sinner, how is it that he's able to produce this amazing miracle? God doesn't listen to sinners. And so already we see that the truth can't really be held, right? It can't really be held down. If somebody's truly from God and they're truly sent by God, you can try to cover it up, but there's a division. People are already starting to question and and the Pharisees' authority is already starting to become undermined and already starting to become questioned. So in verse 17, the man says that Jesus is a prophet. Well, what do we think of that? What do we make of that? Is Jesus a prophet? He is, isn't it? Isn't he? he? He's a prophet because he... He, he's, he, in many ways, his ministry took on a prophetic mantle as he prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem and many other, uh, many other passages where he stands as a prophet, but he's more than a prophet, right? If anybody were to uh, uh, stand up here in this pulpit and preach that Jesus was only a prophet, then that person probably wouldn't preach here ever again, because we know that Jesus is the son of God. But this man is saying that Jesus is a prophet. And even though Jesus isn't just a prophet, this is still the beginning of his faith, right? He's, he's starting to grow in his faith. The, the seed of faith is beginning to germinate within him. And even though it's not complete, this man is taking steps in responding to the light that he's been given. He doesn't understand why he was born blind. He doesn't understand why he was healed or who healed him or, or the significance all, of all that. But he has to conclude within the context of the Old Testament that at least, at very least, this man is a prophet. And that doesn't go over well with the Pharisees because they just said he was a sinner. So point number two, first point, man brought, brought to the Pharisees. Number two, the witness of the, parent, the parents. So The Pharisees don't buy this one bit. The miracle is fake in their minds. And we know that because they decide to call the parents as witnesses. If they knew that this was a a true miracle and they wanted to cover it up, then the last thing they would have done was call true witnesses. But when they call the parents, unfortunately for them, they don't get the answer that they're expecting. I'm going to read verse 18 through 23. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him and asked them, is this your son who said, who says he was born blind? How then does he now see his parents answered? We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So right off the bat, the Jews don't believe. They call the parents and they question witnesses. This is the most logical thing that you would do, whether you were 
uh, somebody who is dishonest or honest. They're kind of really doing the right thing and calling witnesses, trying to have discretion, right? But we know that their motive is not pure. And so what happens here is when they question the parents, the parents react. They react by telling the truth, which is great, but they begin to distance themselves from the miracle. They begin to distance themselves from their son and from Jesus by saying that, yes, it's true that he was born blind and that he's, he's apparently well, but don't ask us anything more than that. We have no idea. We, we don't know what's going on here. Ask him. He is of age. People don't want to be associated with Jesus when it's not popular. Don't let this surprise you. This is a very typical thing that you're going to see. When Jesus is popular in uh, a group of people or in a culture, they're going to associate with him because it's popular. But when it's not popular, they're not going to do that. Don't be surprised. The purpose of this questioning is to lead to what would have been known as shunning or excommunication in our minds. Casting out, we're going to see. Casting out of the synagogue. What does that mean? I, I, I read about that, and as I studied into that, it was kind of like uh, an abyss. Because the more, I the more I studied, it was like the more I could study, the more, the more information just kept bubbling to the surface on the Internet. There's a lot to be uh, learned about this shunning. The Jews had three different levels. The first one was kind of a warning. You were cast out of the, the synagogue. Nobody could talk to you. The second one, it got more serious cast out of everything, every, every, uh, every aspect of society you were absolutely cut off from. And then there was a third, uh, when I say cut off from every aspect of society, that includes dealing in, in the marketplace and selling and buying things. Nobody would sell to you. Nobody would buy from you. And then the final is a complete cursing called, uh, known as anathemization. You were anathematized and you were an absolute pariah. Nobody could touch you. Nobody could be in your company. And in some cases, you could be stoned. So that's what's at stake here. And the parents are terrified. You would hope, though, that in their courage, seeing the power of the miracle, that they would stand with their son. But they don't. Because shunning is at stake here. They don't want to be cast out. Point number four. We'll talk about these issues more in the application point number four moving on in verse 24 so the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him give glory to god we know that this man is a sinner he answered whether he is a sinner i do not know one thing i do know that though i was blind now i see they said to him what did he do to you how did he open your eyes and he answered them i have told you already that and you would not listen why do you want to hear it again do you also want to become his, his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples. You are his disciple. But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast 
him out. So in verse 24, they call the man again, and they want to put words in his mouth. They start to tell him what to say. Glorify God, but we know this man is a sinner. In other words, glorify God that you were healed. Praise the Lord for that. We're not going to say it wasn't a miracle because we can't. Your parents just confirmed that you were born blind. Somehow, through some strange sequence of events, you are now healed by a, a miraculous work of God. But this guy that you're attributing it to, he's a sinner. Just glorify God and just, you know, don't say anything about that guy anymore. This doesn't go over too well. And in verse 26, they want to hear the story again. Because now they have a problem. This man isn't shutting up. He's going to continue to say, I don't know about any of that, but I know that I was blind and now that I see. So they want to bring it up again. Why would they bring it up again? Why do they want to hear it again? Because now they've got to take steps to cast more doubt on the story. And if they bring it up again, maybe there's some sort of thing that they can use to cast doubt, some kind of inconsistency. And the rulers are beginning to look more and more jealous, ignorant, and even irrelevant. Because now, instead of magnifying and glorifying God for a great miracle, they're looking for inconsistencies. Verse 28 through 29, we see them start to throw up this kind of flimsy argument. It almost, start, it almost starts out sounding like a good argument. Start, start talking about Moses. We follow Moses. And you might expect that they would go to the Old Testament and try to show how Jesus is a sinner. They try to show, you know, how when God gave the commands through Moses, those commands were meant to be taken seriously, including the Sabbath. You can't walk on the Sabbath. And this man, if he were from God, how would he show such inconsistencies and begin to discuss the true nature of the Sabbath? Really discuss the word of God. Really discuss what's the meaning of doing good on the Sabbath. And maybe they would come to the conclusion that they had a wrong understanding of the Sabbath and that Jesus was actually a man of righteousness. But instead of that, they start talking about Moses and they say, we know Moses, but this man, we don't know where he comes from. Well, okay, what kind of argument is that? That's almost like an argument from silence, isn't it? Have you ever heard of an argument from silence? It's inherently weak. Some liberal theologians try to teach that the Apostle Paul never believed in the virgin birth because he never specifically taught on the virgin birth. Is that a good argument? Could it be that the Apostle Paul just never had an instance within the context of his ministry to teach on that that we have? We don't have him teaching that in the prison epistles or in the other epistles but that doesn't mean that he didn't believe in the virgin birth. That's, a, that's an argument from silence. It's inherently weak. That's what people, people use those kinds of flimsy arguments when they want to make the word of God of no effect. But this is even worse than that because it's an argument not just from silence, but an argument from ignorance. Because we don't know something, it must not be true. What kind of ridiculous argument is that? That doesn't make any sense. But if you were there... And you, were, and you were watching this as one of the common people, you may have been tempted to go along with that argument. The blind man may have been tempted for a moment to be like, well, that's true. These people are the leaders. There's nobody who knows more about the Bible in this town than these people. 
These are the Pharisees. They memorized the Torah. They were experts on the Talmud and, and all these other books. It's almost as if they could have gotten away with that in that context because of the power and authority that they had. Certainly, if the leaders didn't know this man, he must be a charlatan or a fake. But the man is filled with boldness because he knows his life has been touched by God. In 31 through 33, he exposes the ignorance of that statement. He doesn't allow it. Because if, if, if he had allowed that, what would have happened? I believe that everybody would have accepted it. If he would have been like, oh, you're right. Maybe it is just God. Maybe this guy isn't. And everybody would have been like, oh, well, Jesus, I guess it is a fake. I mean, these guys didn't know him, so we won't talk about him again. But he stands up in boldness and says, no, that's amazing that you guys, as the experts of the law, of all people in this place, you should be the ones that should have an explanation for this. You should be the ones that could take us to the word of God and explain the, the verse that Marty had read previously from Isaiah about the prophecy of, of, of the Messiah opening the eyes of the blind. If anybody should have been able to do that, it would have been them. And he says, well, this is a marvelous thing. You guys are teachers of the law and you can't explain this. And he starts to teach them. Pretty bold. That's some serious boldness. We can't help but admire him for that and look at our own lives and, and pray that God would work the same boldness in us. In verse 34, they cast him out. The threat that was always there from the beginning is now brought to fruition and he's cast out of the synagogue. Point number five, spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. I'm going to read 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who may who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see your guilt remains. So in verse 35. After the man is caught, cast out, Jesus finds him and asks him if he believes. And this is the point at which his faith takes another huge leap forward. Because before he was saying that Jesus is a prophet, now Jesus come and testifies that he is the son of man. Which, in the context of the Old Testament, that would have been understood to be the Messiah. Right? Now, this man steps forward in full faith. His faith has been germinating all this time, and it's now coming to full fruition. In verse 39, Jesus begins to teach about the true meaning of the miracle. The true meaning of this is all about spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. Spiritual sight is seeing Jesus for who he is, seeing the law for what it is, seeing righteousness for what it is. Spiritual blindness is, is seeing uh, the deception of your own goodness before God because 
You're so righteous. Spiritual blindness is seeing the law as something that allows you to earn your way to God through your own effort, blindness. And then when anybody threatens that, when anybody questions that, you recoil in horror and condemn somebody who is from God, saying that person is a sinner. Spiritual blindness. And he says something here in 40 through 41. He's, because the Pharise, some Pharisees are nearby and they, and they kind of mock at him. Are, are we blind? Seriously? Us? We? The Pharisees? And he says, because you say you see, your guilt remains. What does he mean by that? He means that if you're saying that you see, then you have a righteousness, a self-righteousness that is always going to prevent you from seeing the truth. You will remain blind. We'll get to that more in a bit. Let's go into the uh, application. Uh, five points. The first one being faith grows in stages. Faith, faith is something that grows in us as God draws us and brings us close to him. And we have to remember that that's something that oftentimes takes time. Sometimes we see somebody radically converted in a moment. And when the testimony is shared, we see the high tops of their salvation experience. And, and, and that compressed testimony is so glorious and we just worship the Lord. And it gives the impression sometimes that this happened very fast. And in some ways it did. But if you were to live through it with them, it would, it would seem like a struggle. It would seem like such a slow and agonizing process. And this man, when he first talks about Jesus, believes in him simply as a prophet. And, sometime, and, if, and if we were there, we might be tempted to be like, well, that's not who Jesus is. He's the Savior. He's Lord of all. And sometimes when we're witnessing to people, we, we want to give them the gospel. And then we want to take what we believe, every last bit of knowledge that we have, and we want to cram it down their throats. But people need time to grow. They need time for God to draw them. And this is a call to patience because when we witness to people, we need patience for them to work it out on their own and see God be faithful in his word and see how the word convicts their heart and is consistent with everything that they see in society. Righteousness, wickedness, salvation, and transformation. And as they grow, they see the truth of the gospel. It's also a call to be patient with ourselves because a lot of times we can get very, very impatient with ourselves and we can get discouraged with our own, um, our own progress in faith as we grow in faith and we struggle with some of the same things over and over and over again. And that's, that's where I found myself. And we have to remember that it takes time for faith to grow, for holiness to grow. It takes time in the word. It takes time in prayer. It takes time coming to church and being among those who are also growing and hearing the word of God taught and hearing the word of God preached and singing the songs. That's why I, I, I want to encourage everybody to come to church, come to church every Sunday, make it a practice to be here and a discipline to be here every single Sunday. Because being here doesn't make you righteous, but being here lets you grow in faith. It, it, it allows you to, to create relationships with other people that are beneficial and that are convicting and that are encouraging. The word of God, reading the Bible, 
as often as you can, praying as much as you can, spending time at the feet of Jesus and just letting his grace transform you. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek with when you seek me with all your heart. We got to we got to seek the Lord with all our heart. Point number two, two set in their ways. There's often a group of people that you'll encounter in church, in churches, or your friends, or whoever, in your family, perhaps, that are so set in their ways and their legalistic understanding of righteousness that they are going to oppose you. They are going to, they are going to stand against you. They're going to, they're going to try to accuse you of being somebody who is not righteous. You could say that this was all a misunderstanding of the law of the Sabbath, but we've already seen that that's not really what it was, was it? Because then they would have gone back to the scriptures and they would have tried to teach from the scriptures, but they didn't do that. They had a deep internal pride in their own righteousness that they didn't want to give up. They had their own functional saviors of riches, titles, the law, tradition, legalism, power, influence. All these things were their Messiah. And at the end of the day, they wanted a Messiah that looked just like them. They wanted a Messiah that, that, that looked back at them from the mirror. And so when the real Messiah came and was so clearly evident in his power and his teaching and fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures, they accused him of being a sinner. Too set in their ways. We got to ask ourselves, is that us? Do we ever cling to things that are legalistic interpretations of scripture? Do we ever, do we ever dismiss somebody who is a man of God teaching because of one doctrinal difference that we have? And somebody stands up and they give an amazing sermon, but they say something that you eh, don't quite agree with. It goes against some theology that you were raised in. And because of that, you just drop it. That person is evil. I can't stand him, right? I see these kind of patterns sometimes. You know, growing up in the church, I've seen these, these different groups of people um, in the church. And we have to ask ourselves, is that us? If that's, if that's you, if that's me, then we have to repent of that. Point number three, controlled by fear. There are people in the church, many of us have walked in, in these paths um, that are controlled by fear. Fear of the world, fear of religious leaders, fear of tradition, fear of what other people think. And don't be alarmed if you're, if you're surrounded by these people and those people turn on you. If you're walking in righteousness and those people are not happy with how politically incorrect you end up being, they will attack you. They will attack you. They don't like it when people rock the boat. It's not comfortable for them. They don't like it when you start to talk about things that are offensive to the world and its version of politically correct, political correctness. And they're going to say, you shouldn't have said that. And you'll say, excuse me, I was just speaking the truth. I'll be like, well, I, I, I can't support you in that. And they'll turn on you. They'll leave you alone. And you'll stand there to give the good witness of righteousness all alone. Don't be surprised if that happens to you. Number four, 
Courage to stand alone. This man shows remarkable courage. It's an example to us. And we need the Holy Spirit of God to give us that kind of courage because you could stand in courage a little bit with some vibrato, 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 bravado, like Peter did, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane. He pulled out a sword and he attacked. How long did that courage last? I mean, that's pretty amazing. He attacked a mob, cut, cut that guy's ear right off. Pretty cool. Wrong-headed, obviously. Jesus didn't like it. He said, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. But for a moment, the courage that he had was impressive, but it didn't last long. And the next thing you know, he's denying Christ. And that's the way it's going to be for you and I if we rely on the, in, on the flesh for courage. We're going to stand for a moment like David before Goliath. And after a few minutes, they're going to look for you and they're just going to see you running. They're going to be running away. We need the courage to stand in faith with the peace that passes understanding in love, not with some extreme rhetoric or some kind of bravado that we work up in the flesh, but in, in the peace and love and faith that we're given through the Holy Spirit. We also cannot allow people to get away with nonsensical arguments. There is a time to leave people in their foolishness, as Christ often did. He, 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 someone would reject him, and he moved to the next time. But there is, there's often a time, and the, and the Holy Spirit has to give you wisdom in this. You can't just know. You have to know through the Holy Spirit. There is a time to stand up and say, no, what you said was wrong, and I am going to stand here in opposition of you. We can't let people get away with ridiculous arguments about the Bible to prove something that God never intended. And this man has the courage to stand up and say, this doesn't make sense. Do you want to be his disciples? Is that why you keep asking me these questions? This is amazing because you guys are supposed to be teachers of the law and yet you don't even know where this guy comes from. And he exposes them. In Ephesians 5, it says, have no, fruitful, no, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. We are called to expose the wickedness and hypocrisy of the world. That's what we're called to do, to shine as lights. So when somebody comes in and starts saying things that's just horrendously wicked in front of people who are easily, who are easily led astray and you don't say anything, then you're giving that person a platform without any opposition to lead these poor people astray in your family. Or in the workplace. But if you stand in courage. God will be pleased. And God will help us. Spiritual blindness number five. Versus spiritual sight. And this is the point that the whole passage is driving to. The whole passage. The point of this. If you forget everything else. You, I pray that you remember this. That spiritual blindness. Is what Jesus came to heal. He didn't come as just a miracle worker. He came as the Messiah who was to take away our sin before the Father, to take away our spiritual blindness and show us the truth that we can't save ourselves, that we can't work hard enough we can't, to be righteous. We can't use the law to earn righteousness with God. He came to show us the good news. 
And we have to ask ourselves, have we been blinded by our own self-righteousness? I've been struggling with that lately. I've been like, wow, this is convicting. I didn't think I had any self-righteousness. I'm standing on the promises of God. And that's true to a large degree. I'm saved and I'm, I'm trusting in God's righteousness. But am I relying on myself from then on to grow in grace? Right? Because that promise of grace and not being able to earn anything before God doesn't just touch salvation and the gospel. It also touches sanctification and growth in grace. And if you continue to rely on your own strength for grace or, or your, own, uh, your own strength for, for um, pleasing the Lord, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. And I've had to wrestle through these things because I see blindness in my own life sometimes right to 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 the person who is not saved the good news is you can't earn salvation you can't earn that and so what needs to be taught is that you don't you don't rely on the law you don't rely on trying to be good you don't clean yourself up first before coming to christ you just come to him come as you are and say lord please forgive me I can't earn salvation. Please give it to me based on the righteousness of your son, Christ. To the Christian, it is, <clears throat> it is coming to the Lord and say, I can't make myself grow in the Lord. I can't do it. I have strongholds in my life that will not move. I'm coming to you in complete dependence on you. Save me from this. I'm going to walk in you in faith, with you in faith. To the nominal Christian who thinks that they're saved, that's the most dangerous place to be, right? Because you don't realize your need of him. To the nominal Christian, look at your heart and realize that you're trusting in yourself. Ask the Lord, am I trusting in myself? I've been saved for 20, 30 years, but I see this in myself. I'm relying on the fact that I was born into a Christian family. I've been a member of a church for 30 years. I'm trusting in the fact that I know the Bible so well. I'm too educated not to be saved. That's the danger, isn't it? That is the danger. Are we blind? Luke 12, 47 through 48. And... That servant who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did not and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. We've been given a lot. And because of that, there's a temptation to pride because I've known people who use all the amazing tools that have been given to us in the last 20, 30 years, commentaries, right? They've taught themselves Greek. They've got the blue letter Bible on their phone. They've got all these study helps. It's like we've got access to a lot. And because of that, much will be required of this generation, I mean, the generations past, even in America, 
you know, could you even go to the library and find John Owen, John Knox, Richard Baxter, all these great Puritans, and then the guys who are teaching today? Could you even go? You would probably have to go to seminary in order to get those books, access to those. Now you can get those for free on the internet. You don't even have to buy them. They're just there on a website. Somebody just typed them up. And then if you don't like reading, somebody, a lot of times they just read it into a YouTube video because they can. They're just reading it. Oh, these are all Spurgeon's sermons. And they read it in there. And so, th- so people look at that and they say, I can get all this knowledge. And I've seen people go from zero to 100 miles an hour, just like that, from the internet. And they are prideful. Knowledge puffs up, the Bible says. The flip side of that is, what is our excuse? We don't know the Bible. To whom much is given, much is required. All right? 2,000 years of church history, there's never been a time that we've had more access to information. But we cannot rely on that. We cannot rely on how much we know the Bible. I've seen it too many times. As the worship uh, team comes, I want to give a final word of encouragement, and that is you don't have to rely on yourself anymore. Isn't that good news? You don't have to, right? God uses faith, right, to convert the unbeliever to a believer, and then he, 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 he uses the effort somehow in a mysterious way of the new christian to grow but those aren't the things that really save you are is it it's all grace it's all a gift it's all a gift and if you're here this morning and you're discouraged i (laughs) i've been discouraged deeply in many many ways and many many hours um even in preparing this sermon and i can say i i I don't, know, I don't know exactly how you feel, but I can join with you in prayer. I can commiserate with you. I can feel your pain to some degree. And there's good news. I feel like I'm, 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 I'm living out my sanctification before you all, you know, preaching these sermons. Like, I learned another lesson. Here it is. <laughs> but like people, we've come to him and he's got the grace. He's got the grace to give us salvation and he's got the grace to bring us to the place where we can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He has set me free from all these things that used to bind me and used to hurt me and used to make me feel like such a dirty person. He set me free from that. And God has that grace for you. So I just want to give you that encouragement and and I hope that um, in everything that the Holy Spirit is working in your life and using these messages to bring you closer to him. I love you guys. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.